Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Hi, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth once again, and we're pleased to have Jason Wood with us. Jason is an attorney whose company serves dental practitioners throughout the United States, having worked with over 7,000 dentists nationally. Jason, we're pleased that you joined us today. Thank you, and I really appreciate you having me. Well, we're going to just jump right in here today and begin talking about uh, some issues that have to do with transition planning. And one, one of the items that uh, practice owners who aren't ready to sell yet typically avoid is doing transition planning. And that may be fine for a while. Uh, certainly is not uh, a good thing in the long run, but in the short run, it can kind of come back and, and become a hardship for a family or a staff or for patients. And that situation would be when uh, there's unexpected disability or death. Uh, could you speak something, some to uh, maybe transition planning that practice owners might want to think about to, uh, uh, you know, just those who love their family and care about their staff, staff and patients who, who just want to uh, do a good job planning for the future? Absolutely. Well, I, I'm apologizing now for people that may not know this, but you are going to die sometime. I, I hate to break it to you, but um, we tend to, for whatever reason, not want to focus on what happens to all of us. And so um, where we see the, the uh, Bob, as you just said, the, the biggest heartbreak uh, is when a doctor dies and they haven't done any planning. Uh, disability, hopefully they have disability insurance. Um, it's not as big of a deal, but death obviously, you know, usually happens suddenly. And now all of a sudden we're left with a state of affairs that can be really messy. Uh, the, the first thing that you should do as a practice owner is you should have a trust. Uh, you should have a trust that has the dental practice as a part of that trust. Now, why is that important? Well, a trust allows you to avoid probate. It allows your trustees, usually your spouse or, or, or kids or whatever, to immediately control that asset, the dental practice. So what does that mean? That means that the trust can immediately bring in associates, can immediately contact, hopefully you have um, a, a support group that you know, maybe 10 to 12 of you have agreed to, if one of you passes away, you guys will 
um, you know, take turns running the practice. Uh, it allows your trust to immediately contact a broker and, and list the practice for sale. It allows you to bring on an associate and hire that associate as if you were the practice owner. So there's a lot of reasons why you should have a trust. Um, and that's, that's the easiest, best way to do it. Otherwise, if you're forced to go to probate, it could take three, six months before you get power to sell. And guess what? Your patients are gone. And we've seen multi-million dollar practices then be sold for equipment value simply because they didn't have a trust and they couldn't do anything. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a sad story that I wish I would be able to stop telling, but unfortunately people don't like to listen to this. So, um, so two things, get a trust. Number two, if you don't have a support group already, you should really think about doing it. Um, uh, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a mutual benefit. So most of the people will sign on. If you're part of a local dental society, I would start there. Uh, disability, again, if the disability is a way in which the trust or the, the um, heirs can take over, again, they can control in, in full capacity. A disability though, you know, provided that the, the mental state of affairs is still there, does allow you to move swiftly to bring on an associate or something like, or to, to sell. So I'm less concerned about disability than I am about death. Um, but, uh, you know, disability can have its own uh, concerns as well. I haven't mentioned the term codicil before, and maybe that's not necessary if things are properly stated in a trust. Is that anything that one would need to be involved with, with a codicil, or is that uh... Uh, something that's uh, not necessary if things are properly set up in a trust. Right. So a codicil or, or will um, is not a trust. So if that's all you have, then you should be getting with an attorney and, and doing a trust. Um, there's still a will uh, associated with a trust. It's called a pour over. And so anything not in the trust uh, upon the, the death is transferred into the trust. So again, you avoid probate, but a will or codicil doesn't, doesn't avoid probate, unfortunately. So um, it's good to have, but it's not all that you need. Got it. Very interesting. While we're on the subject of uh, uh, legal challenges, uh, you know, we're, we're switching now from the, you know, what unfortunately happens uh in everybody's lives uh, at one point inevitable uh, that every practice owner eventually goes out of out of dentistry but when we look on the buyer side we look at some of the challenges that buyers face so this is in a, is in a different vein of uh, challenges but uh, nonetheless when we're looking at transitions there there are things that uh, both parties face so the uh, one, one item I thought would be worth bringing up would be challenges that buyers face with their employers and non-competes. And I'll give you an example. We had, our company had a buyer that everything had been signed, approved, uh, loan approved, everything was ready to go toward closing. And it was our understanding that the buyer did not have a, a non-compete with their current employer. But when they first became an employee of the practice where they worked, they were owned by a private dentist. That dentist sold to a DSO. 
And at that time, the associate signed some paperwork with the DSO and the buyer's attorney right before closing discovered that in fact, the buyer did have a non-compete. And so uh, as the, uh, the buyer's attorney went back to the, the DSO that the buyer worked for, there was no grace given. And the, the non-compete of the DSO, and this is a large DSO, what said that for three years, now remember this is a, a non-compete with a, someone who was wanting to own their own practice, not a non-compete for an associate. You could associate any place around, but you couldn't, you couldn't own anywhere in a state where this DSO had practices or any state they planned to go into for three years after having been employed by them. Now that just seems so heavy handed that it, uh, it seemed like certainly it would have been defeated in a court of law, but in this case, the buyer didn't want to, to get into the hassle of a legal dispute. They'd already quit their, their job and they were unable to buy the practice that they were in contract to purchase for this reason. And we ended up, excuse me, selling it to another buyer. Have you uh, experienced challenges with uh, non-competes that, that buyers have with their current employers? We have. Uh, and, and what I tell all my clients is, is pretty much the same. Um, if this was something that you signed and it's an onerous non-compete, is it enforceable? Probably not. But do you want to spend 100, 200, 300 grand fighting it? Hmm. And unfortunately, that's you know, that's the risk you take. Now is a non-compete that is all over the state and maybe even surrounding states enforceable? No, but from a buyer standpoint, what you need to understand is every contract that you sign is important. You don't just sign things blindly. Uh, what I typically tell clients when they are dealing with DSOs like that is that you revise the non-compete to state within an X amount of miles from the practice location that you saw the majority of patients at. That way, if you're traveling four or five, six different places, your, your covenant is still only associated with one practice. And you can oftentimes get that. And by the way, probably shouldn't be taking a job from a DSO or any uh, private buyer that has onerous non-competes because that goes to the psyche and the psychological nature of the, the uh, organization itself. So um, I, I would be very concerned about onerous non-competes because I guarantee you that isn't the only thing wrong with the contract. Well, as we're talking about, we talked about a challenge that uh that sellers face. We just now spoke about a challenge that buyers face. Now let's talk about a challenge that buyers and sellers face in regard to real estate sometimes. It's common that buyers and sellers often think that, hey, if they can work out the, the purchase price and, and the closing date and some of the major items in a, in a practice transition um, plan, uh, they get that worked out a letter of intent and they go on to the asset purchase agreement that, hey, it's going to be smooth sailing, but sometimes the real estate can hold things up. Obviously, lenders don't want to finance uh, practice acquisitions if the, if the practice buyer don't, doesn't have the, the clear opportunity to uh, 
the right to use the real estate, either as an owner or as a tenant, and that really needs to get nailed down. What uh, uh, challenges have you faced with assignments and and purchase real estate purchase contracts? Well, let, let's talk leases first. Um, okay. All sellers who lease their space should look at their lease, move to the assignment and subletting section, and review that paragraph or paragraphs. Um, if you see the term landlord can approve or disprove an assignment in landlord's sole discretion, you may potentially have a problem. You need to circle that, draw arrows to it. And when it is your time to re-up, like your option, we need to negotiate that out. You always want the term reasonable discretion as a part of your assignment and subletting language. That means if the landlord tries to say no to your potential buyer when you're selling, they better have pretty darn good reasons. And when a landlord has said no, they're not going to allow a buyer to assume the lease. I pick up the phone. I get on in touch with the landlord's attorney or the landlord themselves. And I say, so I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. Um, you're required to provide reasonable grounds. And you're saying that the buyer doesn't have sufficient net worth because that's usually what they say. I go, and yet this Fortune 500 company, Bank of America, you know, uh, provide West, uh, um, you know, US Bank, Wells Fargo, whoever, uh, is lending them a million dollars on this practice. Do you think that a judge is going to take your reasonableness on this and side with you? Or do you think that we're going to be able to show that this buyer qualified for a million dollar loan in, in comparison to your $4,000 a month uh, lease and they're going to side with you? 99% of the time, I, I get the landlord to, to back off. So, but you have to have reasonable discretion. Otherwise, I mean, you could be wearing a pink shirt and they don't like pink and they can tell you no. And so you, you need to know what's in your lease. Um, with respect to real estate transactions, uh, actually one of the big issues that has come up recently is, I mean, obviously if you're a, if you're a standalone building, you own your own space, not really an issue. Um, there are, there are issues that pop up, um, you know, hazardous materials prior to when you own, uh, zoning issues, things like that. But where issues tend to pop up with real estate transactions is when you're a part of an association, uh, and the association has specific guidelines or specific rules with respect to transfers. But the biggest issue that we come in and we're seeing more and more because this was big in the 1970s is that sellers are trying to sell their practice, but the real estate is owned as a part of a partnership with other tenants. And there are, um, the, the one that just happened was the other partners want to jump the rent up and there isn't a good lease in place or there's something else. And that tends to harm the transition. But 
there seems to be a lot of dentists in the 65 to 75 year range that own these, these co-ops or these, these partnerships as a part of real estate. And it is a big issue. Um, and it can really create a lot of extra work and a lot of cumbersome deals taking place. So again, you can prepare, you can plan, but you have to be out front. So if you're going to sell your practice, you need to have all this stuff six to 12 months before you're uh, selling. You need to be looking at all these documents. So. Well, I, I've experienced just exactly what you're talking about. I can think of one instance in particular where, and it may have been back in the seventies as well, where a practitioner and other practitioners of various healthcare um, and other healthcare fields went together. They built a new building. They all they all paid for the building percentage-wise based on their square footage. All the expenses come in for the building. They all split the their you know their pro rata share of expenses all the way through, and there's no lease. And and then one one and then the dentist wants to sell his or her practice, and there you go. So uh, you know that's. Uh, I'm a real estate broker as well, so I have an opportunity to connect with some real estate resources uh, that are helpful. And you know, when you have the ability to identify what a property is worth and uh, assign a cap rate based on research, you know, get an 80-page co-star report or whatever for the area, and then work backwards to determine what the lease should be based on fair market value of the real estate and. And all those things coming together are really helpful. And I think if you if you have it papered up real well, that you can get everybody to believe that you know that that the numbers that you arrive at are legit, and hopefully there'll be consensus to move forward. Well, Jason, I know that you like to uh, keep the train of thought going in one particular direction, but we are going to have to make a little turn here on uh, to just finish up this last section here. We just have uh, a couple minutes, so I wanted to uh, to ask you about uh, for sale by owner transitions. A lot of times, practice owners are interested in doing FISBOs, and uh, perhaps you could speak to some of the challenges that they may face. Um, I, in my opinion, for sale by owner transactions tend to be the most difficult. Um, unreal expectations on the seller. Uh, there's nobody steering the ship. Um, they have a they have a much higher, in my opinion, a much higher failure rate than practices that are um, being brokered um, uh, or with substantial advisors in their in their uh, uh, back pocket. So there tends to be areas that they miss. Uh, they don't have a signed it, signed uh, NDA, which is a non disclosure agreement. And so they're sharing all this information with potential buyers. Um, there isn't this, uh, you know, they let buyers come in and the staff sees. And I mean, there's just so many problems with for sale by owner transactions um, that I just, I, I, I don't cringe necessarily, but it's, I know that there's gonna be a ton more work involved for, for my buyers. A um, ton more work involved for me, which means added cost to the potential buyer. Um, it, they, they tend to sit on the market. They tend to not get the purchase price that they want. 
there's just so many possible negatives that you know are for sale by owners now are there some markets that people can be successful with for sale by owners absolutely but it's man they're hard they're difficult to do what about uh, those are FISBOs, so another type of transition uh there are brokers involved but they're dual representation brokers so what should what should uh and i'll be kind uh and uh and let you do the talking on this one. So what are your thoughts about dual representation broker transitions? I am uh, very vocal on this. I have, gosh, hundreds of posts on Dentaltown, uh, podcasts regarding this. Um, dual representation is a fallacy. It's an impossibility. You can't serve two masters. Um, there, There's just, there's a lot wrong. So from a buyer standpoint, you're going to get a very one-sided transaction, even though they're supposed to be representing you as well. Um, the, the dual reps that I come across, um, the purchase price is inflated, the allocations are way in the seller's favor, uh, the purchase agreements themselves are, are highly favored in, front, in, in the seller. There's one dual rep who the only per, person that is protected is the dual rep and you've got to do everything in Mississippi, even though you're in Connecticut. Um, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, and so as a buyer, you need to understand that unless this practice is amazing and it can overcome all those obstacles, you should probably pass. Now sellers, you need to hear what I just said because buyers are becoming more sophisticated buyers know to avoid dual representation practices. So from a seller standpoint, you need to understand that you're not getting the buyer pool that you could otherwise get with a strong broker in your area that is only representing you. So it's actually a negative. Uh, there, you know, are, are you saving a little bit on a commission? Possibly, but you're also probably not going to have as big of a buyer pool. Your practice is probably going to sit on the market for longer than normal. Uh, you're going to you're going to have issues with respect to your buyers when they come in. That you're going to have a lot of failures associated with even if a buyer submits an offer, because those dual representation brokers only want it done a certain way. And a lot of buyers are turned off by that. So I guess my point is, is that because of the impossibility, because you can't serve two masters, the seller at the end of the day is actually worse off going with the dual rep broker than going with a broker that only is representing the seller. Um, well, thanks for summarizing your hundreds of podcasts on that subject. <laughs> Jason, I'm so pleased that you've been able to join us on this series of Long on the Tooth podcast. And if you would, please share your contact information with our listeners. Hey, Bob, again, thank you for uh, letting me do this. Uh, I've had a blast. My, my info, jason at dentalattorneys.com. Phone number 800-499-1474. And then the, uh, the web address is dentalattorneys.com.